familiar term, but uh, for others, not so much. Um, but by the time we get through the end of our discussion today, I think it ought to be uh, clear to all of us uh, what is meant by that, what we intend by it, what the uh, confession intends by that phrase. So we are talking about how it is <clears throat> that um, God calls sinners to Himself, how it is that those who are sinners come to faith in Christ and are regenerated, saved, etc. And so we're going to work through this chapter of confession and ask and answer some questions. I think this um, putting together the questions and then giving the answers I, to me is helpful. I hope it's helpful to you as well. And so we have as question number one there, a long question, uh, but it's built on what has come before, built on what we know from chapter 9, what we know about man in his uh, fallen nature and what that has done to his will. And having learned those things, it ought to raise questions in our minds about how it is that uh, someone who is uh, of that fallen nature could come to faith. And so we start off right where we think we ought to with question number one here. How can a sinner... And then I have a big long quotation here, which is right out of uh, 9.3 of the Confession, which we talked about last week. How can a sinner who has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, who is a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto, how is such a sinner ever to respond in faith to the gospel and be saved? If we're thinking logically and we're, we're thinking consequentially from one thought to the next, the things that we discovered last week ought to raise questions like this in our minds ought to cause us to wonder, well, wait a minute. If our nature affecting our will is such that these things are true about us, and we spent last week pointing out that indeed they are true about us, this is the testimony of Scripture concerning fallen man, given, since we've already proven those things, given that those things are true, how is it that such a person could ever respond in faith to the gospel and be saved? That The importance of that question cannot be overstated. And the consequences of our answers to that question will have far-reaching impact and ramifications on the way we think about the gospel, how we share the gospel, how it is God saves sinners, it frames and shapes how we think about ourself, God Himself, etc., etc. So this question is a very, very important question. And so I have there uh, listed on your sheet a number of passages. And so you're going to need to be fleet of foot or a finger to uh, get to those passages today. On my sheet, I printed out all of them there. Um, but you, I, I left room there. You can look them up and write down notes that are particularly relevant that uh, help us to answer our question. These different passages do that. 
And so, uh, as we begin to look through these passages, seeking to answer this question right now, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. And this is a familiar passage to us, the golden chain of redemption. We've preached on this, we spent a lot of time thinking about this, and we ought to think about it even more than we already do. But Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 says, Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those, those whom He justified, He also glorified. Okay, and so that whole section there, 28, 29, and 30, and really the rest of the chapter of Romans 8, helps us to think about God's work. Our question we're asking is, how can we respond? We look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, and we see God's hand at work, and He says, those whom He predestined, He called. So He issues a call to those whom He predestined. And those whom He called, so He predestines, He calls, and those whom He called, He justified. What I want us to notice is that those who receive the call, every last one of them, by the logic of Romans 8, 29 and 30, every last one of those who receives this call is justified. And as we continue on through uh, the uh, conclusion of the verse there, those whom He called, He justified. There's no slippage. They are the same group of people who are predestined. They are called, they are justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. There, there is no difference between the group specified in the first reference, those whom He predestined, which we could go to the verse before, those whom He foreknew, that group is identical to the group that winds up being glorified. There's not a single individual difference between the beginning of that and the end of that. How can that be? How can that be? Well, if you'll notice the word there, called. Those whom He predestined, He also called. This raises an important topic for us that we need to have in our minds. The difference between what is, what is often known as the general call, sometimes it's known as the outward call, versus a different kind of call, one that is effectual or an inward call. These are two different categories that uh, the Bible doesn't use this exact language, but sometimes it'll talk about calling in an outward general sense like when the preacher preaches the gospel and calls everyone to faith and repentance. That is an outward call. That is a call that is made by a man to men. It's made by a human to humans. It's outward. It's received uh, by the ear, by what you read, uh, or whatever. It's an outward call. Now, the question, if, if that is the kind of call that Paul has in mind in Romans 8.30, would his logic hold up? Is everyone who is called, do they end up being justified? Rick says no. I agree with Rick. 
If this is the kind of call that we're talking about, we've got a problem with Paul's logic because in Paul's logic, every single person who receives this call is glorified. That's not what I've experienced in my gospel sharing uh, adventures, right? And so, but he does use the word call there. Well, the way we understand this and the way we think about this is that we recognize there are differences between the outward call, which is the proclamation of the gospel, by a person to a person. That's an outward call. That's a call to faith and repentance. That call is sometimes received. It is sometimes obeyed. Sometimes not received or obeyed. That's been your experience as well when you shared the gospel. Yeah. Right? You share the gospel and you're, you, you're as clear as you can possibly be. And um, you're, you're trying to be faithful to Scripture and loving this person. You lay the gospel out with tears in your eyes, tears in your voice. And what's the response? Crickets. Yeah. And so sometimes there is no... Uh, no evident response. Now, sometimes over the course of years, you will see a response. Sometimes you will see an absolute rejection of that gospel call. That's an outward call that's made. That's the call of the preacher. That's when, that's when uh, we read in Scripture that, that God uh, commands all men everywhere to, to repent. They don't respond to that often. Right? But Paul here, using language in Romans 8.30, can use the language of call, but in the kind of call that he's talking about, there is a 100% response. Those who receive this particular call are justified, are glorified. So we, we recognize the difference between those two types of call. Yes, Rick? You betcha. Yeah, and I think that's going to be later on in our, on our uh, sheet there. But that's exactly right. So we have a good example. Rick's, Rick's working ahead. His mind works faster than some of the rest of ours. Well, but that's exactly right. Many are called, few are chosen. There's a difference between a particular kind of call and those who respond to that call. This type of call, the effectual call, is um, always results in justification. Perhaps uh, not immediately as we see it with our eyes. Uh, so for example, you know, when I, you may have heard the gospel for 10 years before you responded to it. This outward general call was happening for 10 years straight, and then there was an inward call that God issued and you responded as you were going to, as you were predestined to, as uh, you willingly did. So, it's important for us to have these categories in our minds to clarify when we think through Scripture the difference between the outward call and the effectual inward call. And so what we're looking at today, uh, this is all by way of introduction. We've made it through one entire verse, and we're, and we're 17 minutes in. But we're trying to uh, lay out today this effectual call and talk about it. And of course, the uh, framers of the confession here, they knew that having addressed the issue in chapter 9 about man's will and how the fallen nature of man affects his will such that 
uh, he's this guy here who has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation and has all these other problems. That's a, that's a clear teaching of Scripture. Well, we need to understand in order to, to recognize that sinners do respond to the gospel by faith in Christ. How that happens is the topic of our discussion today. So we're going to uh, work quickly through some other verses here. Uh, we see in, uh, in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. In general, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. See, there's a distinction there that there are those, the elect, who obtain it. Every last one. Similar logic as Romans 8.30. Or Paul again in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Uh, he says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, it's according to His will. He predestined it to take place. How is it that we have this salvation? Well, ultimately, it's according to His will. He predestined it to take place. Or we could look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Something, something special there, but not, not our particular topic. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel. See that word called? To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, He chooses and calls us through faith in the gospel to be saved. There's something about the preaching of the gospel accompanied by this inward call that results in saving faith, salvation for the sinner. That's the means that He uses to call us. To this He has called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2 on this topic is, is very instructive. Verses 1 through 6, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Chapter 9 of the Confession. All right. That's essentially what was being explained in chapter 9. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Problems, problems, problems. Right? You recognize yourself uh, in there. You recognize, I recognize myself as an unbeliever uh, before I came to faith in Christ absolutely in there, which raises the question, how is it that such a person could make the journey into faith? They're dead. Those two words, 
which begin verse 4, are the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead and incapable of responding by faith even to the outward call of the gospel. But because of His great love for us, He made us who were dead in sin to be alive with Christ by grace. It's an act of God whereby He accomplishes it. How is it that we go from being those dead people, deserving of all judgment, incapable of, uh, of, of, of spiritual good in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. How is it that we go from that to being those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, raised up with Him? It's the act of God. God accomplishes it. It is by grace, and that's Paul's point again and again in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Acts 26, 18. I am sending you to open their eyes, says Jesus to Paul, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, God sends Paul as his instrument to open blind eyes so that sinners would repent and believe and be forgiven of sins. God opens blind eyes, and He does so through the means of the proclamation of the gospel when He accompanies it with this effectual inward call that brings life. Or Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? The Spirit of God opens or enlightens the eyes of your hearts to find hope of eternal life in Christ. It takes the work of God to open those blind eyes, to give sight to blind eyes so that we would see and know and respond. It takes that work of God to bring that about. This is what uh, we, we've read about and discussed a number of times in Ezekiel 36. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's what God does in saving a person. That's what God does in... Um, this effectual inward call. He gives a new heart, a new heart of flesh, not meaning sinful flesh, meaning flesh as in responsive to God. A heart that beats, a heart that's not dead stone, which is uh, what we have described and seen described of the heart of a sinful, unregenerate man. Other language used in the Old Testament is the circumcision of the heart. Uh, 
so that a person loves God. That's Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. It's another image showing, showing what's going on, that there must be something done by God in the heart of man in order for him to, to see and understand and live so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Why is life given? It's because God has done this circumcision of the heart. Why does a, a person respond in love to God? Not because they are commanded to love God and they do so with their heart of stone and God responds when they've loved Him by giving them a heart of flesh instead. It's the other way around. A new heart is given by God, the heart of flesh instead of heart of stone, to use the language of Ezekiel 36. The heart is circumcised, to use the language of Deuteronomy chapter 30. The response is faith. The response is love for God. The response is life. Ezekiel uses, uh, continues on there in verse 27 of chapter 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's spirit in us inclines us or causes us to walk in obedience to God. It requires, we require the Spirit of God for that to be the case. And then uh, finally, Psalm 110 and verse 3, Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Parts, uh, part of the power Christ exercises is that His people respond to Him freely. So what's going on in this effectual call is not an overriding and a bending and a redirecting of your will against your will. It is a giving of new life such that you respond with your will freely to God. Respond freely to the gospel call. You're not bent to it. You're not made to do it. The way I describe it, it's a little bit, um, um, a, a little bit simple, but for, for my mind, this works. When we are in our fallen, unregenerate state, we are not in our right state. We're not in our right mind, as it were. And I don't mean to say that unbelievers are insane. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we're not functioning as we were made to function. Our heart is dead towards God. And so we don't want Him. We rebel against Him in our unregenerate state. We don't, we'll, we're, uh, and, and, and that's what we talked about last week. I don't need to elaborate more on that. But when God reaches down and He restores our heart and gives life where there was death in the heart, the response is that we respond as we were meant to, meaning freely responding to God. We want to. We desire to. It's not that God takes us and bends us around and, and, and makes us do something we don't want to, and I guess I'll respond to God. No. He gives us life and a new heart, and we say, where have you been all my life? How does the confession put it? In chapter 10, paragraph 1, Those whom God hath predestinated unto life... 
He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. You see, the problem with the unregenerate man is not that his brain doesn't work right, that he can't understand certain facts or certain logical ramifications. That's not the issue. God isn't making us smarter when he does this to us. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand those things. The unregenerate unbeliever uh, can look at the gospel and see the logical consequences of A, B, C, and D and say, well, I get the logic of that. I understand it. But that is not savingly uh, or spiritually understanding those things. Spiritually and savingly understanding those things is when they realize, oh, I recognize myself on that page. And the, and, and the consequences are not good. I must have that Savior for me. That requires the spiritual work of God. Continuing. Taking away their hearts of stone, Ezekiel 36, giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. The scales have been removed so that we respond freely, desiring God, wanting that salvation that He offers. We respond freely, being made willing by His grace. Question two. How does the effectual call come about or happen? In other words, how does it originate? Now, a good doctrinal presentation, a good confession, will not only present what it's intending to teach, but it will also illustrate and explain what it is not intending to teach. In other words, it will argue against certain positions. And don't we have a nature uh, so often that I'm fine hearing your opinion as long as you don't get too uh, clear about how your opinion, what your opinion means for me <laughs> or for my opinion that happens to differ. As long as, as long as you tell me what you think about a thing, I'm happy to listen till the cows come home. But when you make the statement and, and that means that what you've said is wrong because of, well, now I may not be as happy, right? But it's important that we do that. It's important that we lay these things out. And so we're going to address uh, some particular misunderstandings of this idea of effectual calling. Uh, look at 2 Timothy 1.9. There are two basic problems. Two... Uh, Two basic misconceptions of this idea of the calling of God. Two different ways it's presented. One way that it's presented is that God sees something in you, perhaps in your future, 
Maybe God uh, looked through the quarters of time, as we say, and observed that you would one day respond. And so, having observed that you would eventually get to the place where you would respond positively, He now acts back here and says, good for you out there. You're going to make that choice. I'm going to do this thing here to, to rush that along to ensure it or whatever. That's one particular. That's, that's a, a call or a work of God in the heart of man that is... Um, rooted in what God knows about you versus Joe on the street. There is another misunderstanding of the call of God and and the saving work of God that gives the notion that what God does is He gives you a little kernel of grace and implants that within you. And and if if you can fan that into flame, if you can uh, use... Um, the things that God has given you in the Roman Catholic Church would be the, the seven sacraments. If you can, if you can uh, work those things right and you, and you give your life to doing those things, what you're doing is you're fanning into flame the grace of God in your life so that over time you would be strong and you would be strengthened spiritually and, um, and, then, and then you would have salvation. You would have the declaration from God that you are justified. That you're, You see, you, there, there was something implanted. There was something infused something put in there that then grew into and was fanned into flame into uh, spiritual maturity and things like that. You see the two different problems. Those are the two basic aspects that are being discussed here. Let's see what Scripture has to say on these topics. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, this giving of life, this salvation happens because of His grace, which He has been working since eternity past, and not because of our works, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The reason is found in God, not in me. And we could go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and continue that discussion. Very famous verse we all know off the top of our head. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is by grace through faith and none of our own doing. We didn't do it. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see the problem? The natural man and the the spiritual information, I'll call it. The natural man cannot comprehend that spiritual information because it's spiritual. And he's spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. Right? So he's not able to. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's not just that his brain doesn't comprehend them. He won't accept them. They are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, on his own, is not even able to understand, much less accept, the things of the Spirit of God. He does not see them, understand them, spiritually, savingly. They are spiritual. He is not. Looking back at Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were dead. We were dead and unable. 
but God made us alive, saving us by grace alone. John 5.25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead will hear and those who hear will live. And why is it that we can't just muster up our own strength, determine that we're going to believe the gospel? I mean, and surely if, if the gospel is such great news and, and if, uh, if I were to hear it and see how important it is for me, surely um, I, I could be committed enough. Surely I could muster up the power and the energy in myself to respond to it. Surely I can, right? No, it requires power to take death and make life. It requires the same power that raised Christ from the dead to accomplish that work in me. Do I have that power? Do I, does an unbeliever have resurrection power within himself to give life where there is death? He does not, particularly in himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, uh, to, to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power required to take us from being dead in sins and trespasses to alive in Christ is resurrection power. You don't get that from the gas station. It's the power of God only. What we're discussing is the source of the effectual call. Where does it come from? This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with His special grace. God infuses a little bit, and if we will play our part and do our thing co-working together with it? No, uh, that, this is being denied entirely. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby having been quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. The gospel is proclaimed. And when God determines to issue this effectual call, He reaches right into the person it's an inward call, reaches right into the heart of the person who is dead in their trespasses and sins, who, who cannot comprehend or accept spiritual things. He reaches right into that person and he gives life in the heart. Life in the heart. He circumcises that heart. He takes out the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. And what's the response of the heart of flesh to that gospel call that was just issued. Faith. Another illustration that works in my mind, maybe it'll 
help you as well is the idea of a mammal being held underwater. I'm not a great swimmer, and I, I like to breathe when I want to. That's my problem, right? That's my biggest problem with swimming. I want to breathe, you know. When a mammal comes up out of the water, whether it's a, whether it's a whale that's been down for 40 minutes, or it's me that's been down for four strokes, whatever it is, when, when you come up into the air, you respond. You're a mammal. You breathe oxygen. That's what you do, right? Well, that's a little bit what this is like. We've been restored to respond to how we ought to. We've been made alive instead of dead. And the response is faith. The response is faith. The source of the effectual call is God Himself. It is not through some kind of infusion where God puts a little bit within us and then we cooperate with it and turn it into something great, spiritual life. Nor is it by virtue of the fact that God looked at you and saw that you were a pretty good person and gave you spiritual life. Nor is it that He looked at you and saw in the future that one day you would respond by faith and thus now He does this work to give you faith now. No. It's by His work alone we are wholly passive in it until we are made alive and enabled by His Spirit to respond in faith. And we always do. Remember where we started in Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. One-to-one correspondence between those groups. Always responds in faith when we've been made alive, which raises a question. What can we say about the eternal state of those dying in infancy or who are otherwise unable to hear and comprehend the gospel? That is, what can we say about the salvation of those who are, I don't know what that, who are mentally or otherwise incapable Oh, that should be R. There's an extra C there. Those who are mentally or otherwise incapable of receiving the outward general call. Now, in the day this confession was written, an enormous percentage of children never made it to adulthood. There is, um, it was extremely common that children would die in infancy, in childbirth itself, or in infancy from other uh, types of illness, and if they made it through infancy, uh, they were still not out of the woods. One of my favorite theologians from this time that I like to read, born in 1616, had 11 children. One made it to adulthood. This is not a theoretical question. This is not a, oh yeah, but what about the kind of question. What can we say about those? Well, there have been historically, so we realize this question is one that we clamor for an answer for, don't we? Anyone who has has lost a child, anyone who has experienced miscarriage, We ask this question. This is a pastoral question. This is not a theological question. And there are some ways that it's been answered throughout history. One answer that was given 
in, in, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church was that if a child was baptized, they were baptized into the church, that meant they were saved. That meant that even if they died the next minute, that they were in glory. That was an answer that they gave, right? Because it calls for an answer. It demands an answer. This isn't just some uh, ivory tower kind of question that, that nerds think about. Every mother thinks about this. Every father thinks about this. It demands an answer. And so the early church gave an answer. I think that answer is, is entirely wrong. What's the answer that we give in, in our culture nowadays? The answer that you will often hear in our times now has to do with a notion of uh, an age of accountability is what we call it, right? The idea that, that there is uh, a threshold a child must, must reach, and it might, be, it might vary from child to child giving, given uh, certain uh, 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 developmental things and, and, and stuff like that, where, where from that time on, the child is capable of understanding the gospel. That is, they are capable of receiving the outward call, the general call. And from that time on, they are, they are accountable. But before that time, the argument goes that that child is safe in the arms of Jesus. And that's, that question demands an answer, doesn't it? And that's the answer that's been given. The, and that's a comforting answer. The other question, the other answer that was given of, uh, regarding infant baptism that I think was proposed initially by Augustine, that, that answer is also comforting. The problem is I, don't, I can't make that argument biblically. So what do we do? I can't make the baptism argument biblically. In the age of accountability argument, I can't make biblically either. So what do I do? The question demands an answer. Open to John 3. Here's, here's the problem. Not only does the question demand an answer, the Bible gives no more than a whiff of an answer. Though this is a pastoral concern, though this is a question that has been asked by every one of us in this room, most likely, the Bible doesn't teach us a lot on the topic. John chapter 3, a uh, conversation there between Jesus and Nicodemus. There is a lot going on in this passage, the primary message. Um, uh, well, we'll read, we'll read through it. You've got John 3, verse 3, 5, 6, 8. I've, I'm going to read it all uh, from 3 through 8 for you. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God's Spirit is the one that gives life when, where, and how He chooses. The Spirit of God gives life when, where, and how He chooses. What does this have to do with our question about infants? We're asking about perhaps not only infants, but those who have such uh, mental restrictions or, uh, or something similar that causes them to be incapable of receiving the outward call of the gospel. That outward call that, that uh, we've said is what God uses in issuing the inward call of drawing to Himself uh, those He's going to save. What does this have to do with infants? It has this answer to offer. The Spirit of God gives life where He wills. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who issues life. The wind blows, and you, you can tell it's blowing, and you can say, well, generally it's blowing eastward. Where did it come from? You don't know. Where is it headed? You don't know. That's an, that's an illustration of the Spirit of God. You see life having been given. It's the same when you share the gospel with someone. You share the gospel with guy A, crickets. You share the gospel with guy B, response of faith. You see life. What was the difference? You're the same person sharing. The difference was the Spirit of God gave life with guy B. He blows where he wishes. And so, rather than look to some other kind of idea about baptism, as if baptism were to give spiritual life, or to rest upon a notion that we can't find any evidence for in Scripture of a type of age of accountability, what the confession here does is say, well, we don't know much, but we know this. The Spirit of God gives life where He wills, period. Examples are given from Luke chapter 1 and verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems like John in the womb responds to the presence of Christ leaping for joy and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit from it. It seems like John is already playing his prophetical role. But this is a very unusual circumstance. Very unusual. He's John the Baptist. He's the greatest prophet ever born of a woman. Probably he's going to be exceptional. We have the passage from 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23 that everyone's thinking of, of David himself, David, and his uh, a, a baby boy that he had um, in this illicit relationship with Bathsheba. He's been praying and fasting, laying on his face because the baby's been sick. And as soon as David gets the message that the baby has died, he hops up, washes his face, and goes to eat. And they ask him, David, what's going on? And he says in verse 23, now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David will go to the infant, but the infant will not come back to him. Doesn't that argue that infants 
uh, that, that this infant certainly was in heaven, and that's what David is referring to. No, it opens the door for that possibility. But David could have simply meant, I'm going to death as well. He's not going to be restored to life to walk beside me, but I will go to death. It could mean that. It could mean that he's uh, going to go to um, uh, just death itself, Sheol, as they called it in the Old Testament. It's unclear. But the door is open. David will be with this child at some point again, in some way. So the door is open, but there's not a whole lot to lean on there. So what we want to do, and what the confession does, is try to lean hard into what we do know. And, and what we know, if you recall from the confession, uh, chapter 5 and verse 3, which is probably three months ago now, to, uh, chapter 5 and uh, paragraph 3, God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of means. God uses means, yet, key word, is free to work without those means, above those means, and against those means at His pleasure. The Spirit gives life where He will. Period. So what does all this mean? What am I, what am I trying to say? This question must be answered. I have the question. You have the question, but the Bible doesn't address it in a, in a head-on kind of way that can give us the answer. And so we look to 10.3 of the Confession. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how He pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. What, what the confession attempts to do is establish rock-solid, exegetical, biblical, theologically sound uh, position from which to answer this question. Which says, anyone who is elect will be regenerated, will be saved. And so... would be the case of elect infants. Now, Spurgeon uh, thought this was uh, inadequate. He, he held to the 1689, uh, but he did make an edit here, and he removed this word elect so that he would say infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. I think that goes farther. I think that goes beyond what Scripture says. Scripture gives the category of the elect being saved by the work of the Spirit as He pleases. And so, the idea of there being elect infants, those who are infants, that though they cannot receive the outward call of the gospel, they can still receive regeneration because the Spirit does what He wants. And so, for elect infants, it would result in their regeneration and salvation by Christ through the Spirit. Now, that's different than Spurgeon. Spurgeon says all infants, period. This is the result for them. I don't think there's biblical warrant for making that kind of argument. There is biblical warrant for making this kind of argument. 
And so again, we have a very difficult question that, that must be answered, and yet the Bible does not give us a ton of help. It establishes some framework, some basic understanding, some basic theology and direction by which to answer this question. And I think, personally, and the confession uh, is arguing that here we stand on solid ground. Is this saying anything about the identity of those elect infants? No. But it's, but it's saying, when we think biblically, this is the only way infants can be saved. There's more to say on that topic, but, but I hope you hear that this isn't just a theological discussion. We must answer pastoral questions and difficult heart issues. We must answer them from sound theology. But hopefully this is not only a theological statement. This is, this is the way that we can have biblical hope for the eternity of those who have died in infancy or others who are uh, mentally incapable or in some other way incapable of being called by the ministry uh, of the Word. Okay? Now, I've got two minutes. Last question here. What can we say about the eternal state of those who are not among the elect? Um, You've got verses there. Let me see. Uh, Matthew twenty two fourteen, which Rick already jumped the gun and took us to. Many are called, but few are chosen. The outward general call is different than the inward effectual call. Right? We see uh, that there are those who appear to respond. Matthew 13, 20 and 21, the parable of the soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We'd think, oh, great, this person was saved, right? Yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Some appear to respond to the gospel, but they only do so for a time. Similar to what we see in Hebrews chapter 6, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. In other words, some have been enlightened in some ways. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Spirit. They've, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Thus, they show some effects of the working of the Spirit, but then they fall away and show that they were never saved. There can be apparent evidence. We all know this. <clears throat> but John... Uh, records for us Jesus' words in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they were all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. The only way to be saved is by faith in Christ, and the only way to come to Christ is for the Father to grant it or to draw him. And anyone not drawn to Christ cannot come to Christ and thus cannot be saved. Because, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This doesn't let people off the hook who are in a, a foreign religion, in a foreign land or something like that. Uh, Jesus says in John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And he continues in 17.3 of John, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, says Jesus, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is only found in Christ, not by um, being a good follower of Muhammad or uh, any other religion. So what can we say about the eternal state of those who are not among the elect? No surprises here. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the Word, that is the outward call, and may have some common operations of the Spirit. In other words, it may seem that they're responding in some ways. Yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. Cannot be saved being outside of Christ. In order to come to Christ, we must have the effectual calling of God working in our heart to draw us to Him that we may be saved. I've already gone over, and I, I apologize for that, but, but um, the, there are some important, important topics for discussion in here uh, for us to look at. I wanted to look at them in depth, and I hope that we have covered that uh, in depth enough today. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Father, we are grateful that you have worked effectually in our hearts. I know in myself I was unresponsive and dead, and your scripture testifies that uh, that is uh, true of every unbeliever. That there was no ladder given that would have been enticing enough for me to climb it, nor did I have the power to climb it. I would have stayed dead in my trespasses and sins, regardless of how much law was given to me, regardless of how much I was told to walk in the right way, no matter how much I was uh, uh, told that there was a, uh, a life in a certain path. But you worked by your Spirit in the heart of this wretched sinner circumcising my heart, taking out my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh, calling me effectually by your Spirit, giving life where there was death, such that I responded by faith, as does every single one to whom you do the same work. And we rejoice and praise you for that. We owe our salvation from very beginning to very end to you alone and none of ourselves. And so we worship you and we look forward to worshiping you together in our church service. We look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper having heard of what it is Christ has done for us again. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.